Hello listeners and welcome to the Montel Weekly Podcast, bringing energy matters in an informal setting. In today's pod, we return to the UK. The country's Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, is currently under fire for attending parties in Downing Street during the lockdown. But before Easter, he laid out the government's plans to become less dependent on non-domestic energy sources, mainly through a massive rollout of nuclear and offshore wind. Are plans to expand nuclear capacity by 17 gigawatts realistic or even feasible given the amount of time it takes to bring reactors online? Who will build them? And more importantly, who will pay? Joining me, Richard Sverson, in answering these key questions is Anthony Froggett of Chatham House. A warm welcome to you, Anthony. Good to have you back on the pod. Great to be here. Thanks very much for the invitation. So what did you make of the the energy strategy unveiled two weeks ago? We had a bit of time to digest it uh, and to gauge the reactions. Yeah, I mean, I think it was it was odd, to be honest, because if you compare it, for example, to the EU, where we had a sort of RE power uh, announcement, that there was a very clear delineation between what is needed on the short term and what is needed on the long term. So in terms of reducing the contribution of Russian energy to the EU economy, there was a very clear strategy about what will be done in the next 12 months and then what will be done by the end of the decade. And I really felt that that was lacking within the UK publication in terms of it, it, was, it seemed to be much more about the long term than what is needed on the short term. Part of that you can understand because in terms of dependency on, on Russian energy, the UK is, is far, far less dependent. So it, it's 4% and 8% of oil and gas, respectively, while yeah, Europe is 40% of, of gas consumption. So huge differences, but yet were framed in the same way. It's about energy security. And within the UK, it really was about the future. It wasn't about what, what is needed to be done over the next year or so. And I do feel that given the cost of living crisis that we are about to face, I think it really misses the point. And I think electorally, it's probably very damaging for the, for the, the government in the, probably in the medium term. As you say, it does very little to address the, the, this energy crisis and these short-term uh, issues that are going to become quite critical very shortly. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the figures out, I mean, as of the, be- the end of last year, 12% of households within England were officially fuel poor. They're spending 10% of their income on energy costs. The estimations that I was reading up until this week were that by the end of this year, when we get the next hike in, in the price cap, that might be 30%. And then evidence yesterday, in yesterday, sorry, uh, on a Tuesday in the House of Commons from the energy companies were 40%. So 40% of households in this year may be fuel poor. And that is remarkable. And I would have thought from an, an electoral perspective, this is something that they need to address. And, and just from a societal perspective, if we have that hike in, in energy costs, coupled with expected real hikes in food costs, and if I may uh, plug a report that we published last week, looking at the energy and food implications of the Ukraine crisis, it is this combination of factors that are going to have a material impact in countries all over the world. And so it's not, if, if, we, if we think it's bad here in the UK and in OECD countries, imagine what that means for many of the developing countries in the poorer parts of the world where they have the same problems in terms of increasing in costs. So what would you have liked to have seen instead then? We can go into the, some of the details a bit later, Anthony, but what, what would you have liked to have seen in the strategy that would have addressed 
you know, the short term elements of this crisis? The UK government is in a difficult position. It doesn't really run the energy industry, does it? I mean, it's run by the private sector. So it has to cajole, encourage, regulate the companies, but also encourage society to change in terms of behavioural shifts. So, I mean, I I think, again, if we compare to the EU, in the EU's proposal, they said, for example, that they would encourage, or part of their energy saving strategy was to get households to turn down their heating by one degree. And that would save, yeah, they said 10 uh, billion cubic metres of gas every year. Obviously, saying that and then doing it is different things. But the intent is that in the next 12 months, that's what they will do. So you'll have to have a a mass publicity campaign, etc, to ensure that that happens. So there wasn't anything like that, that in terms of we need to encourage behavioural shifts. There was some expectation there'll be a, a reduction in VAT on insulation and heat pumps. But again, it needs to be more specific. So you can do issues such as that to reduce the cost of insulating homes. Obviously, insulating homes and insulating buildings is the real win-win. I mean, we're talking about energy security. We're talking about the cost of living. We can't forget the sort of the third pillar of the trilemma in terms of climate change and environmental protection. And demand side measures are the one action that addresses all of those three things simultaneously. And so absolutely should be the priority. But there isn't, yeah, we need money behind it. And and it really is one of these issues that has a high upfront costs and then, yeah, a relatively long payback time. But obviously with higher energy prices, that payback time is significantly reduced. So we have seen the, this government and to be fair, all, all governments really failing in this area. There's schemes to encourage efficiency and green home schemes, et cetera, et cetera. And these just aren't learned from, and we're not seeing these being deployed at the scale necessary. Mm. And of course, by the time a lot of these policies have been implemented or in the current energy strategy, the energy crisis will, to to, to many, to, to a large extent, be over, or at least the current one, potentially. There may be others on the way. But if I can just go through the details of the strategy, I mean, they're incredibly ambitious in terms of nuclear rollout, Anthony. Do you think this is a feasible and be you know possible to 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 pay for this i mean financially viable try not to be too cynical on nuclear but we have been here before i mean we can look back five years cameron was talking about rolling out we can look back tony blair the 2000s was uh what, what was the phrase uh the new dawn or of, of the nuclear industry you can look back to thatcher she was saying we're going to have a whole fleet of new reactors so there is a historic set of announcements by prime ministers of Labour and Conservatives that says we want to support the expansion of the nuclear industry in the UK and it doesn't happen. And again, I think that's partly comes back to the point that I made before in terms of it isn't the government that controls these sectors, it is the private sector. And so I I, I do find it a bit odd when the government says we haven't had consistent support for nuclear, which is why we're in this in this situation today. Governments have been supportive of it, but the support that industry needs, treasuries aren't tending to be willing to do. So maybe that will shift. But yeah, I mean, it it is a economic question. Obviously, the the issue with nuclear power is the very, very large upfront costs and long construction times and lengthening construction times. So every one of the reactors, I mean, Hinkley now, what was the, the quote? Was, wasn't it by the, the head of EDF at one point that we'd be cooking turkeys 
uh, Christmas in 2017 or 18. I can't remember which year it was, but I mean, it, we, we're yeah, a decade late again. And yeah, it's the costs have, have gone up. So yeah, it isn't very good. And if you're a, a investor, you're looking at that and going, that's not a very good bet. And in particular, when the costs of the alternatives are falling. And, and for me, that's the, again, the question about what we're seeing from the energy security strategy is onshore wind. It's known how to do it. We know that it's cheap. It is the cheapest form of renewables, probably, along with solar, onshore solar. And yet it's not really being encouraged. And that's for local political reasons. And I, I think that's a real shame. Again, if you wanted to reduce dependency on imported energy over this decade, what you do is onshore wind, solar, and you will deliver gigawatts worth of power. What you don't do is say we're going to invest in offshore wind and nuclear, both of which have much longer lead times. So I just do think they got the balance wrong in terms of horizons. Mm. And this is due to some internal politics within the Conservative Party and, and local potential local opposition to wind farms. Is that is that what you're saying here, Anthony? Yeah, I think it's a combination of things. Is is there is the Conservative Party are much more the the party of uh, rural areas, and there is some vocal opposition. I don't think it's large vocal opposition, but there is opposition to wind turbines and large scale solar, and I think that scares the Conservatives. And in terms of the security strategy, says we will not review the planning issues in this area and. Clearly, there have been occasions that wind has gone wrong and, and it has been done in a, a bad way and locals have been affected by it. But it, yeah, you have to change the way in which you approach the planning necessary than stopping the technology being deployed. I mean, just to say also offshore wind is a good thing. And, and, and what we are seeing is a very ambitious strategy to significantly increase offshore wind. The UK does have a great opportunity in, in terms of offshore wind. I think there is... Yeah, real opportunities for the UK to work with neighbouring countries, in particular in the North Sea, in terms of helping to develop that as a regional development that can help uh, energy security here and uh, on the continent, which I think, yeah, helps to reduce costs. So I, I, I think it also has benefits in that way. Hmm. I mean, if we return to nuclear and the financing issue, uh, Anthony, I mean, with Higley Point C, they had the contracts for a different model. Now I think they've gone to the, is the, the regulated asset base model. Is, is that going to change anything, do you think? Is that going to provide these huge upfront costs to some extent anyway? Um, yeah, I mean, it's the interest rates... Obviously, if you're if you have a construction cost of tens of billions of, of euros or pounds, and yeah, you then have a relatively long construction period. I mean, from the, the large Hinkley's at sort of ten years. So yeah, if if you can have an approach in which you are getting income during that time, so yeah, it there is a, a real advantage for you in terms of the, the financing of, of the nuclear power plants. And that's sort of what they are proposing. So I can see that that makes economic sense if you're the nuclear builder, but it should be something that is available to all different energy supply options. I mean, it, it shouldn't be just a special case for nuclear, but we have seen it in other places. But obviously, the it is one of those issues that who bears the, 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 the economic risks of construction because obviously if current energy consumers are paying for something that they haven't 
there is a, a levy placed on their bills for something that will be built in the future, then there is a certain additional risk for them uh, compared to uh, a model where the, the constructor is just paying for the, for the construction costs. Mm. We've talked about Brexit before on the pod, Anthony, but does this give the government more opportunities to sort of directly subsidise some of these projects? I mean, free from sort of state aid rules? I guess in theory, I mean, my belief has been that the state aid rules from the EU are somewhat legal, but also political. And you can see, I mean, in terms of the UK's record with uh, state aid rules in nuclear, things that they've wanted to do have been done. So, for example, Hinckley is granting significantly more in terms of the, the contract for difference that you're talking about than, say, offshore wind is now being proposed. I mean, obviously, the cost of onshore wind has fallen considerably while Hinckley has been constructed, but they still got through that approach that enabled them to get Hinckley off the ground, and it's being built under EU state aid rules. So Sizewell, yeah, maybe built under the RAB, and again, if the UK had remained within the EU, then I do not think the state aid rules would have stopped them doing what they want in terms of the RAB or and any other future build. But then it also begs the question, who's going to build these plants? I mean, okay, EDF, but EDF doesn't have a, a lot of money spare. And then there's the Chinese, probably pretty out of favour at the moment as well. Uh, who else is, is, is left? The Japanese pulled out, you know, uh, quite a number of years ago. Um, uh, no, I think it's, it, it, it's who will build and who will finance. I mean, are the two questions. So Sizewell uh, C, in terms of what may or may not be built there, there are indications that, as you mentioned, the Chinese were potentially going to be partners in that. They've fallen out of favour and are unlikely to invest or unlikely to be wanted to invest. And so there is talking about uh, the EDF putting up 20%, the UK government putting up 20%. So that still leaves 60%. That need, finance needs to come from somewhere. So there needs to be a, a very clear mechanism by which those people that are investing do not feel that they are running an undue risk. And I guess that's a financial risk and a sort of increased guarantee of, of rate of return on their investment. So that's where the Treasury comes in. And it is interesting in terms of the language within the energy strategy, there is still the sort of caveat is we will build all of these nuclear as long as the economics are, are favourable. So in some ways, that is the language that we have seen up until now. And again, the the proposal is that there be in this parliament the complete or the, the the final investment decision on a new project. So that's Sizewell. That is what was intended in any case. So I don't see that there's anything different in terms of that more rapid uh, deployment. I thought what was interesting is Rolls Royce have been saying that they will like to have a a decision on the regulatory framework by 2025. And that there could be operation by the end of the decade, so by 2029. Now, I hadn't. I've just seen that in the press. I think that's very fast. Obviously, these are these are different reactors. These are small modular reactors. They're not. These are 200 megawatts as opposed to 1600 megawatts for for Hinkley. So they are smaller. I would argue that they're probably not small in in, in the true sense. I mean, it used to be that when we we're talking about small modular reactors, they were going to be 50 megawatts and that you would not quite, but effectively you put them on the back of a lorry, drive them somewhere, put them down, plug them in, and then they go. So you have all of the, the construction 
is the the serialization of the construction is done in factories so that you can then roll them out much quicker so this is a bit of a halfway house but this is what uh, Rolls-Royce are building so yeah we'll have to see whether or not that timetable is stuck to but they need to have Rolls-Royce and other constructors so who else will build as you said we we had Itachi uh, we've had Eon we've had RWE yeah we've had yeah Japanese Germans all of which have uh, proposed building here and have then pulled out so maybe yeah one of those projects will be dusted off and and start being developed again but yeah if we come back to Rolls-Royce though, I think that that's quite interesting and we're you know to go from 50 megawatts for for SMRs as well, small modular reactors as was proposed uh, many years ago I remember there being talk of this now to 200 that that's as you mentioned Anthony that's quite a sizable jump you can't fit 200 megawatts on the back of a lorry um and where where would you build those I and mean, which sites would they be the standard nuclear sites that you know sort of the Bradwells the Sizewells um Hunterstons or, or or wherever in the UK or these would be the established nuclear nuclear sites or would it be fresh brownfield uh, areas in the country what's your view here i mean i think initially you would see them on on the existing sites i mean it, and it makes sense in terms of you have the workforce locally with experience you have the interconnectors yeah you have the local public support so all of those reasons it would be logical to to have them close to the existing sites and i guess if in their vision of of a successful future they would demonstrate those in in these existing sites and then be able to more quickly uh put them into new to new areas and new regions but yeah i mean i think that's some way off i just want to touch on what you were talking about with offshore wind as well anthony i mean i think you know the uk and several other countries across Europe, if not the globe, will be looking to roll out offshore wind quite dramatically in the coming years. But what would this do to supply chains and costs more generally? I mean, could this add to a huge increase in costs or even potentially delays to several several, several projects? Yeah, it's a, it, it always is a challenging thing, isn't it, in terms of if you accelerate your deployment rate. And again, if we look at this in, within the EU context... Their Fit for 55 package has a massive increase in the use of renewables, and that was prior to the situation in Ukraine. And then their new energy strategy has a further acceleration of that. So, yeah, the UK, as it's doing wind, as it's doing solar insulation, and as you said, in particular, offshore wind, where we have a, a the UK has a, a greater focus, then as other countries also seek to do these technologies in an accelerated way, then there is pinch points in terms of the supply chain. I mean, my feeling is that is to some degree inevitable. What we need to have is confidence from the sector and from investors that this isn't a boom and bust approach and that what they're seeing is okay it's an acceleration now but that acceleration continues or that rate of deployment continues over the next years and decades therefore we should invest in our supply chain to enable us to meet that demand because yeah it's going to be there and we can profit uh, from that so um in some ways that's what we have seen to some degree in the past, if you look at the history of solar power, is Germany in the early part of this century, so the 2002-2003, put in place the feed-in tariff for the first time. And that saw the, the boom in uh, deployment of, of solar, so that it went from hundreds of megawatts to gigawatts to seven gigawatts, I think, deployment in 2005 six and seven so those years and then italy picked up the baton and was doing seven gigawatts so within five years you were going from 
tens to hundreds of megawatts to tens of gigawatts. And the supply chains in Europe were insufficient. So then China started increasing its production and it increased it very rapidly and was able to meet that. And then you had a slowdown of demand in Europe because of the 2008 price crash. And China then had a massive capacity for solar. And then it started deploying it domestically and selling it to other parts of the world. And then that supply chain has now continued to build. So to some degree, that's an example of boom and bust, but it's also an example of the extent to which global supply chains can manage this ebb and flow and can find new markets. At the moment, everyone is focused on energy security, or at least in Europe, we're focused on energy security. But it's only six months ago that we had the Glasgow Climate Change Conference, uh, in which the world re-pledged to meet the Paris Agreement objectives. Of, uh, and that requires a radical shift in energy use and significant increase in, in renewables. So if you look at what's needed by 2030 to meet those Paris objectives, there needs to be a significant reduction in the use of oil and gas globally. And that far, far exceeds the production coming from Russia by 2030. So in some ways, we have to be moving this path in any case to meet, if, if we want to address climate change in the way that uh, international leaders have agreed we, we should. So in some ways, it's just speeding up in certain regions. And just one final point on it. I mean, you talk about yeah the, the sort of pinch of supply chains. It's also true in terms of the fossil fuels. It's interesting. In, again, Europe is saying we want to reduce our dependency on Russian gas. So as I said at the beginning, like 40% of the EU's gas consumption comes from Russia. Uh, they say that we want to reduce our dependency 100% by the end of the decade and 60% this year. And part of that is the mechanism's efficiency, greater renewable deployment, etc., behavioural change. But some of that is also increasing import of LNG. President Biden has pledged 15 BCM, etc. But also that is then EU competing on a global market in, in a way that they haven't in terms of LNG. They've been much less using much less LNG, more pipeline gas. And that is already having a knock-on implication in other parts of the world. So these rapid shifts in terms of supply, it's not just our locality we need to think about. It's, it's what does that mean in other parts of the world? A final question, Anthony. And, and um, if, you know, if, if we're talking, talking a little bit to, about the obstacles to renewables deployment, and, and one in the UK and in other parts of Europe and the world are permitting processes. Now, there's been talk even you know, for offshore projects that, you know, onshore resistance to it because of either eyesore or, or the amount of infrastructure that needs to be built on the shore to allow for that to happen. Do you see that in the UK as, as, as being an issue? And is the government dealing with that? Again, within the strategy, they talk about accelerating the deployment, uh, the, reducing the licensing rate for offshore wind. I think they talk about halving it. So clearly there are non-tariff barriers, siting issues, regulatory issues, etc., that affect the deployment of all technologies. And quite rightly, people need to question whether or not this is the appropriate place to put the kit. The logic of offshore wind is in part because it, it is becoming less visible to people, so people see it as less damaging to the to the sort of the visual environment. But yeah, it still has to come onshore somewhere. But we also have gas pipelines coming onshore. We have electricity cables coming onshore. So um, yeah, it is it is part of the issue that needs to be done sensitively. But there needs to be a balance in terms of, okay, well, if we don't do that, what else do we do? And then that's, again, if we accept that we have to uh, decarbonize and we have to move off fossil fuels, then we need to change the way in which we operate the gas system 
and the power system, and that is is going to change the infrastructure that we have. If if I were to summarise uh, your views here, Anthony, would it be that the UK's energy strategy, to some extent, satisfactory, but could do so much better? I'm not sure it's satisfactory. I I I I, I really don't understand the why there isn't more focus on the short term issues and what is going to concern people over the next two years and that is rising energy prices for households and if what as i said earlier 40 percent of households are energy poor within the next year or so four times what we currently have or we had it in november that is a huge social burden and so why the strategy hasn't done more to say we recognize this problem we need to do things that not only help us address the social costs that higher energy prices will uh, bring, but we will also do more to help reduce energy prices on the short term, not looking for the construction of nuclear power offshore wind 10 years from now. It's about what can happen now. And I think that is a real, yeah, as I said, I, I think it's a real problem in terms of society, but I don't understand it from the politics of it, if I'm honest. If we have local elections in May, unless that by the time we come round to the next national elections, they're able to to bring out more legislation to help people in terms of their energy bills, then I think it, electorally it's going to be a real problem for them. So the energy crisis, as it deepens, it may may force their hands. Um... Yeah, from a society, they shouldn't have to force their hand. In some ways, it is obvious what we are seeing. Uh, and again, the evidence in in the House of Commons um, on Tuesday. A, a united front from the energy company saying this is coming down. This is the, this is the natural the, the natural consequences of what we are now seeing. And I don't think anyone believes that the the crisis in Ukraine is going to go away soon. Even if yeah, by some miracle war stops immediately, I think there has been a seismic shift in terms of European views of the depend the willingness to be dependent on Russian gas and the willingness to pay for Russian gas in the same way and Russian oil. So, I mean, I think it, it's interesting just that the the shift for a long time, the, the narrative has been in terms of dependency on Russian energy. Well, we're mutually dependent. We are dependent in Europe on their gas, but they're dependent on our revenues. Russia is dependent on the revenues. But I think there is a new view now that we don't want to be giving money to Russia in, in the degree, the same degrees. And I think it what it's a billion billion euros a day is now going to Russia. So I think that shift is significant and I think permanent. And I do think that the EU will continue in its desire to move away from Russian dependency. And I think that will affect us to the, in terms of fuel prices. Then even though we're not part of the EU, we are part of the European price zone for energy. And so I think that is... It, higher prices are probably here for a considerable period of time. Adney, thank you very much for joining the Montel Weekly Podcast. Thanks for the interesting discussion. So listeners, you can now follow the podcast on our own Twitter account, aptly named the Montel Weekly Podcast. Please direct message, any suggestions, questions, or you know, let us know if you, if you think you have a good idea for a guest on the show. You can also send us an email to podcast at montelnews.com. Lastly, remember to keep up to date with all that's happening in energy markets on Montel News. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thank you and goodbye.